Welcome to Strategy International, a podcast produced by PodMTL that brings you insightful conversations with experts from all over the world on topics related to international relations and policy, security, defense, environment, and much more. And now, your host, George Santrizos. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Strategy International podcast. This is the podcast uh, produced for Strategy International, a global think tank and a consulting firm that brings together great minds from all over the world that uh, come together, they analyze, they discuss, and they collaborate on issues of global interest, such as international policy, uh, uh, economy, defense, strategy, the environment, and much, much more. We have another great guest today with us, uh, Victoria Bodnarova. She is the regional coordinator and outreach uh, liaison for the Euraxis Latin America and Caribbean, as well as the Euraxis Worldwide. We're going to get to that in uh, just a second. Very interesting. We'll get to know exactly what uh, Euraxis is, the mission, and all the wonderful things that they do over there. In the meantime, you can head on over to strategyinternational.org to check out all the beautiful things happening over at Strategy International, all the back catalog of podcasts and other productions. Uh, and other um, uh, valuable information as well. Uh, Victoria, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Hi, George. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here today with you. Thank you for coming on. And I understand that you're in Colombia. How, how, how are things in Colombia? Yes, exactly. I'm in Colombia. And everyone thinks when I say that I live in Colombia, how such a beautiful weather every day and and sunshine and i must be almost every day on the beach but unfortunately it's not like that because then i say i live in bogota which is the capital of colombia and that's one of the only places in colombia where it's never hot uh, it's kind of coolish. Uh, every day of the year we have between 11 and 15 degrees celsius um, we are in the mountain, 2,800 meters uh, high, um, so it rains a lot, uh, so definitely need a jacket every day if you want to go out. <laughs> um, we're going to get to a little bit what you do because I find it fascinating. Uh, last episode, for the people listening, um, we went into detail about uh, the European legal framework, uh, specifically the European Commission. And uh, on this episode, we're going to go a little bit more of a, a micro uh, approach into a specific kind of program that stems from the European Commission, uh, which is your access. Uh, and we're going to get to learn a little bit about it and uh, what it does. Uh, because to be honest with you, it's the first time I hear about this program. And certainly there are others uh, out there listening or watching that uh, are hearing about this for the very first time as well. Um, tell us a little bit about your access uh, and then we're going to get into the into the details. Absolutely. I will be happy to tell you about your access that, you know, it's a name that doesn't ring a bell to a lot of people. Obviously, the European Commission, the European Union, uh, everyone knows about those terms. Um, but when it comes to your access, they're like, you know, what that is, why that word, you know, who came up with this? Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, it actually means access to Europe. So that's how we came up with the word your access. And it's a European Commission's uh, initiative uh, from the Directorate General for Research and Innovation uh, that really provides information to the researchers, to the research community, 
to universities, uh, research institutions about fellowships, grants, uh, opportunities uh, to finance uh, their mobility stays, uh, their research careers, and also collaborative projects. So it's it's basically um, an initiative, a project that was born um, almost 20 years ago. Next year, we are going to celebrate the 20th anniversary. And uh, when it was born, the name was a little bit different. Uh, it was called uh, uh, it was called um, uh, Aerolink, uh, but now it's Euraxis. And uh, basically, at the time when it was born, you know, the researchers were telling us. Okay, we want a place, we want a platform where we can find information about all these jobs and funding opportunities. And we can also find information about visas and, and uh, uh, where to find schools for our children, you know, administrative uh, issues that everyone needs when they are especially moving from one country to another. So that's when the European Commission said, okay. We do have funding for research, but we also need these intermediaries, right? We also need uh, these platforms that can really help researchers. Therefore, we created, at the end of the day, this one-stop shop uh, that the European Commission likes to call it, um, which has uh, two arms. It has the European arm and the international arm, right? And when it was born, it was a European um, right now, we have um, offices or so-called Euraxis service centers in 43 uh, European countries, uh, where my colleagues, uh, what they offer is information uh, about practical information uh, about, as I mentioned, you know, where to find accommodation, information about social security, health insurance, uh, legal issues, visas, uh, work permits. So that's what my colleagues in Europe do. And us outside of Europe, where we are based in nine global hubs uh, around the world, our mission, our objective is a little bit different as we are much smaller than, than the group of colleagues in Europe. So our mission is really to provide information about funding opportunities to these researchers and what kind of fellowships and grants they can find within the European countries. So just a little bit in a, in a nutshell. You know what I find fascinating because there's kind of like a, a like a diplomatic aspect to this, and the way that you're describing it is as though uh, it's a service for citizens that want to leave Europe and settle elsewhere outside of Europe. And you would imagine that the first stop would be to, you know, whichever country's embassy uh, in the respective country that uh, you know these people are from, where normally one would go and get all sorts of information, especially with respect to. Um, you know, the social security and visas and that sort of thing. Uh, and, and it's fascinating to me that through the European Union, you have kind of these satellite offices that kind of assist and they're actually located all over the world. Um, and I found that kind of, uh, uh, you know, unique in a way because that doesn't exist or at least not that I know of, for example, where I'm from in Canada, I don't think any other country all over the world has like an office like this to facilitate uh, academics or professionals that want to, um, you know, to, to be mobile and to travel and to relocate around the world. That's true. That's very true. And I think that uh, now that we are almost 20 years old, uh, the initiative and the project has become quite known uh, within Europe and outside Europe. Although we struggle every day to promote our services and information because, of course, there is so much out there. 
Um, but something comparable, something that uh, could be really similar, uh, what we do, um, it's really, as you say, really hard to find because we are very specified in terms of our target audience, right? Like we really have specific information for researchers, professors, um, PhD students, postdocs. So we really specialize to a, uh, to a certain group of people. We are not here for everyone, which also makes our services unique. And um, honestly speaking, you know, what you just mentioned, uh, th those services that we provide that are completely free of charge, at the end of the day, we don't, uh, we don't cover if, uh, if a researcher comes uh, to our office or to our welcome center and then they ask for information, we, we provide that type of services completely uh, free. Um, so going from outside of Europe towards Europe or from another Europe, from within Europe, um, my colleagues offer, you know, that information, as you just said, because we have over 800 people uh, that work in these 43 uh, countries uh, within Europe. Um, so it's it's quite a big uh, Euraxis family. But then on the other hand, outside Europe, we are a very small team. We are only a team uh, in the nine different uh, global hubs. Therefore, we we don't provide the same information, you know, unfortunately. It would be wonderful to have five, six people in every single office in the world. So we can do the same vice versa, you know, as my colleagues in Europe offer that information, practical information. Um, we couldn't do that um, because of the lack of uh, personnel, which I hope that it will increase at some point. So what we do is really, you know, inform all the people that are here in our countries about uh, the funding opportunities that Europe offers. But still, it's a, it's a very lar large scale. Why why um, limit yourselves only to researchers or to, uh, from what I understand, mostly like, you know, the field of academia? Uh, is there a reason specifically for that or that's just how it's been designed? Um, the reason is because we were born within the DG or as they call it, the Directorate General for Research and Innovation of the European Commission. Yeah. Um, that's where we were um, basically created. Um, and that's that's where the actual niche was. That's that's where the need was, um, because when we look at, for example, uh, more towards like bachelors or, or master students, um, they are part of the DG education because there is another director general within the European Commission that deals with education, culture and youth, um, which would be obviously the place where um, the grants for masters and, and bachelors are, are provided. So they, they had already these um, uh, offices or especially the alumni network of the so-called Erasmus Plus that I'm sure that uh, you, you, you've already heard of and also uh, our audience because it's a, it's a program which is well known. So they do have a big alumni uh, association around the world where they provide this information to the students that would like to do a bachelor or master degree. So where where really, you know, the information was missing was actually this specific target group, uh, the researchers, the family members of the researchers, the professors, um, and the um, and the higher basically level uh, investigators uh, that uh, that we cover. I want to go a little off topic here because someone by the name of Victoria Bodnarova that ends up in Latin America. I mean, you don't hear about this very often. So I just want to know 
how you ended up in Colombia and uh, if this was something that you were looking forward to or what happened? How, how did you evolve professionally to, to, to get interested in this sort of field? Yeah, I mean, my trajectory um, has been or is uh, quite, uh, quite interesting and quite something, to be honest with you. Uh, I think we would need an additional podcast <laughs> <laughs> to, to talk about everything. Um, but just to give you an idea, I was born in a, in a tiny village uh, in the southeast part of Slovakia, uh, which uh, actually has about 500 people. Uh, so it's really it's really tiny. When I say to people here in Bogota that I'm from a village from 500 people, they say, well, that's um, just a, a little corner of Bogota yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> having uh, 10 million people uh, here. So it's it's definitely very small. And uh, and I guess, you know, I uh, uh, I was uh, I was quite ambitious uh, and I was a, I was a child that wanted to explore uh, and discover. Uh, therefore, I decided to uh, to leave uh, Slovakia and embark uh, on a on a very international journey. Um, and uh, I left uh, when I was already 16 uh, and I, I've done some studies in the U.S., uh, then I came back and then I did um, my university in Prague in the Czech Republic. Uh, so that was already also a step uh, outside my homeland. And uh, from there, uh, where I studied international relations and European studies, um, of course, it led me towards uh, this international journey uh, just by it, its name. And I was very fascinated at the time by the European Union, by all its organs, right? The parliament, the council, the commission. And I just thought, wow, one day I would love to like work in, for or with uh, the European Union. Um, and uh, at the end of the day, you know, that that dream of a little girl actually came true. Um, but I had to work a lot and, and the journey wasn't easy. It wasn't without obstacles and it wasn't without um, uh, things up and down, of course. Uh, but I, I did uh, quite a lot of exchange programs as well throughout my studies. I've studied in the UK, uh, in Canada, uh, in France. Uh, and of course, I, I finished my master's degree in Prague. And after my studies, I started working for the Czech Academy of Sciences. Um, so they, I would say, literally handpicked me <laughs> from uh, from my master uh, studies, and I started working for its department of projects and grants. So this was kind of a natural uh, continuation of uh, my my studies. Um, I remember uh, when I was finishing my master degree, uh, the rector of the university called me into his office, and he's like, Victoria. Um, you're one of our best students. Uh, I would like you to continue your doctoral degree because we just opened uh, a new program. And I told him, Mr. Rector, I would love that, but under one condition. If I don't find a job within the next three months, I promise I will come back and continue my, my PhD studies. So as you can see, I'm not a doctor, so that never happened. <laughs> so I found a job. Uh, of course, nothing says that it can it cannot happen ever because uh, it's uh, never say never. Uh, but that was a little conversation that I had with my rector before before starting 
the position at the at the Czech Academy of Sciences, where I started managing both national, international, European uh, projects. And it's, you know, it's very interesting how life and where it takes you, because as I said, you know, I'm not uh, a doctoral student or I don't have a doctoral degree. I never really aspire to be a researcher, but all of a sudden um, from almost nowhere, I get to work with the researchers, right? And and it's like, you know, you attract things uh, at the end of the day. And I started working with them and I started working with their career development, with the mobility of researchers. We had a welcome center in Prague where I was welcoming researchers from around the world and helping them with uh, going to the foreign police to get their visas, going to a bank, opening a bank account, looking for schools for children because they just arrived and they had no idea where to find a kindergarten, a school. I worked with the ministries, uh, with the local departments. So it was a little bit of everything. And I, I really enjoyed that, you know, because it was this direct connection with the human being, right? With the researcher who at the end of the day is, you know, a huge intellectual, you know, a very intelligent person. And then they come to your office because they need help with all that bureaucracy and administrative issues. And of course the language, right? I mean, um, while I was at school, I learned Czech, although it's not that, different from Slovak, but still, you know, it has its um, differences. And then, you know, I went with them to these offices so I can translate and I can help them just make their life a little bit easier and make them welcome uh, in a new country, in their new home. And, and you know, from there, uh, I already started um, learning about your access and, and getting to know about the project, which is a European one and still is. And uh, I said, after two, after five years of working in Prague, I said, I think I, um, I still need to embark on a different journey and need to be a tiny bit more international. <laughs> and uh, I was very much uh, interested in the global arm and the international arm of your access. Uh, and uh, there was an opening for leading the office in North America. I applied and uh, I got the position and that was back in 2013. So that was my first kind of big move from Europe to the US. Uh, I was the director of the office of Euraxis North America, which dealt with the US and Canada. Um, and I stayed there for seven years in total. And after that, uh, Euraxis Global decided to open uh, an office in Mexico. Uh, to lead the Latin America and the Caribbean. And um, that's that's where, you know, my first uh, jump uh, from north to the south uh, happened uh, back in 2020. And after two years of being in Mexico, the office uh, was moved to Colombia, where I am right now. Tell me that first of all, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a fascinating story. Um, and it's great to see how people are connected in this world that just keeps getting closer and closer right, with the, the, the technology that's available. And, uh, it, to me, the, the, these are the stories that, um, I love asking people just to, 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 to know a little bit about the background and, you know, the steps, the different steps that got them to whatever stage in their life. 
Uh, let's get back to your access now. In, in your opinion, based on what you've seen, is there more people that are coming from your region towards Europe or are there people leaving Europe towards the region that you're in? Um, when I was in North America, uh, it was uh, more Europeans going towards uh, North America, especially the U.S., but also to Canada. Hmm. Uh, so that was a trend that I was, of course, uh, uh, looking at and observing throughout the years uh, that I was there. Although the programs, the, the grants and the fellowships that we offer through the European Union are, of course, the other way around, right? It's uh, for the Americans, for the Canadians, for any nationality going towards Europe. But now uh, being in Latin American Caribbean almost for four years and being able to also live in two different countries, um, the region is huge, right? I mean, we have, you're talking uh, about more than 30 countries uh, that constitute uh, the, the Latin American Caribbean region. Um, and the countries are different, right? They have a different life standard. Um, they have uh, different, um, um, uh, different ways of life. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, looking at the mobility flows, this is the contrary, right? So here we are looking at more um, Latinos or more Latin American uh, researchers and students going towards Europe uh, than vice versa. But this is also a little bit a part of um, my objective. And I hope that we'll be able to balance it a little bit more in the years to come so we can get more or less uh, to the same level with all the different fellowships and the opportunities that we offer. And of course, we, we have to make available these countries to the Europeans. We, we have to let them know that these countries are open. Uh, they have a wonderful infrastructure, uh, a huge biodiversity, uh, that these countries are not only touristic destinations, but also destinations where they can have very high-end education and research facilities. Is it working? Do you Are you seeing any progress in that? Because I'm imagining that perhaps the, the, the political stability in certain countries might play a role in that. Uh, how do you see it? Yeah, the political stability, I think um, it, it, it might it might not change very soon, <laughs> to be honest with you. Uh, it has been the case for many, many years, and it's uh, it's very difficult to, to get out of that, um, given the history of uh, all the countries here in Latin America. But I think that we have to focus on the positive side, right? We have to focus on the uh, growth of the research infrastructures within these countries, we have to focus on uh, the collaboration, the different investment that the EU has in these countries and vice versa. Um, the, the Latin American countries have uh, really a, a lot of uh, SMEs, a lot of startups that are um, dealing with innovation, with um, artificial intelligence. Of course, they are doing a lot of research in biodiversity, in climate change, oceans, the Amazon, right? Which is, of course, uh, the lungs of the whole world. And it's here <laughs> in the, on, the, on the continent. But I can say that uh, throughout at least my presence here, uh, throughout the last four years, I can see that there is a little bit of ri uh, rise uh, from Europeans towards Latin America in terms of interest, uh, in terms of uh, willingness to collaborate 
uh, in uh, research and innovation projects between European partners and Latin American partners, and also in the minds of the individual researchers that they would like to come and work in the different teams. Or of course, you know, when there is already like, let's say European professor teaching at a university here. So that's a huge help because through uh, these European or Europeans, these European professors and scientists, uh, we can make it more available and we can have them as testimonials, as examples of Europeans that have um, gone through different projects, have come to Latin America and have been able uh, to also create connections, um, have publications, uh, co-publications and create really good research. You know, in in, uh, in the communications that we were exchanging before the recording, you mentioned something about an EU CELAC summit. What is that exactly? Uh, and, you know, what role does that play in what you do there in that region? So I'm actually very, very excited for this summit. Uh, and that happened this July uh, 2023 uh, in Brussels, uh, where the heads of states uh, from Latin America and Caribbean were invited to this high level summit to Brussels uh, to meet with uh, our, their counterparts from Europe. And this is um, really uh, a, a gathering uh, which happened the last time eight years ago. You know, so this, this was almost a historic step. And I think it also has to do with the Spanish presid uh, presidency of the, of the European Council that is taking place right now. It started uh, the 1st of July and it will last until the end of December. And of course, you know, as you know, the relations between Spain and Latin America historically has been very, very strong, not only because of the language, uh, and I think that one of the impulses of the EU to really hold uh, this summit was the Spanish presidency. Um, and uh, I'm hoping that really this summit will continue and uh, it will not happen again eight years later, but they are talking about in two years, uh, which would be obviously a really good timing because these heads of states, they need to meet. We need to um, really uh, strengthen this cooperation that has been uh, done already a long time ago, and we have so many ties between each other, right? I mean, really, uh, Latin America and Europe are, so to speak, natural partners, because we are united um, with unique uh, cultural and historical links, deep economic and social ties, and really the kind of the joint commitment to peace uh, and multilateralism uh, that we have between the two continents. So I think that there might have been in the past eight years a little bit of um, slowdown uh, in the relation between the two continents, also because we have not been able to have this high-level summit in the past eight years. But I'm really hoping that as natural partners as we are, uh, we will be able to uh, not only pick up where we left off, but also start and invest into new projects, new collaborations, um, and really new ideas can, that can uh, emerge uh, from the collaboration between the two parts. So you believe that the fact that you have all the the, the, the heads of states or maybe most of the heads of states um, from Latin America and Europe, this will kind of uh, stimulate the interest of either people coming to Latin America or people from Latin America uh, getting interested in Europe? Yes, that's what I believe, uh, because also there is a new initiative, I don't know if you've heard about that, from the European Commission, which is called the Global Gateway, 
this was uh, this came out uh, literally at the end of uh, 2022, so it's been uh, not even a year. Um, and uh, through this global gateway investment, which has about 45 billion euros, uh, we would like to also invest into the region of Latin America and the Caribbean. And we are talking, you know, about projects, uh, for example, digital connectivity, the digital alliance. Uh, we are talking about projects uh, that has to do with space, um, such as the big European project Copernicus and Galileo uh, that have a huge presence in Latin America and the Caribbean. Um, we would like to really um, help through this initiative and through different smaller projects that can be implemented uh, in Latin America. So we can we can really um, help life and 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 uh, uh, connect with the with the society uh, both in Latin America and Europe. Now as a liaison officer, I'm assuming that you're pretty well connected or at least constantly networking with either, um, you know, local universities or research, research institutes, uh, uh, you know, the, the academia field, uh, not only in Colombia, but pretty much everywhere in Latin America. Uh, is that part of the job? I mean, are, are you... Are, 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 are you expected to kind of know where to redirect the individuals that are interested in research in a given topic or uh, to study in a given school or university? Like you have to be aware of all these programs and be in contact um, with these institutions or people? So it's a good point because I haven't actually mentioned that uh, before as the as the Your Access Worldwide Outreach Liaison, which is my other hat. Because the one is the regional coordinator for your access Latin America and the Caribbean, and the other one is uh, what you what you just mentioned, um, and uh, basically the role uh, as an outreach liaison for the your access worldwide network is uh, to connect uh, all my colleagues. Uh, as I mentioned, we are in nine different global hubs around the world, um, but we are only eighteen, so it's uh, it's a smaller international family. Um, therefore, I try to connect with them. Uh, I look into the different uh, events that they do. I try to support them, mentor sometimes uh, the colleagues that are younger or not as experienced or they are not with the project for that long. Um, I'm looking for synergies in between uh, the different uh, events and activities uh, that the global hubs do. Um, so we don't have to reinvent the wheel, but we can perhaps, you know, help each other uh, throughout the different initiatives that we do. Because of course, it's not, you know, uh, a one uh, thing, you know, fits all, unfortunately, or one size fits all. Uh, because what works, for example, in the U.S., uh, probably might not work in China or what works in Japan might not work in Brazil or Colombia. Mm -hmm. So we need to work in a very harmonized way, but at the same time have the liberty and the flexibility uh, to create our own events and our own missions and, and our own activities on the ground, on the field, because we are on the field. And we give a lot of feedback uh, to the European Commission, especially to our colleagues at DG Research and Innovation, uh, about uh, everything, about the research landscape, about what's happening within our uh, within the governments of the countries where we live in. As you mentioned, you know, many of them might not be as stable as uh, as some of the European uh, governments. Um, so we give a lot of uh, feedback and input uh, from from the field. 
And also, of course, as we work with the European Union funded uh, projects such as the Marie Curie, the European Research Council, Horizon Europe. So uh, I am also connecting all of my colleagues to these programs, the European programs. So basically the colleagues from Brussels to be able to have, for example, speakers when they need for their webinars or for the events. So it's a little bit of that backup uh, and that additional help of someone uh, who is there um, to, to connect, to follow up, and to really liaise uh, in between the worldwide hubs and Europe. Tell me something a little bit more on a, on a political uh, kind of context now, given the, the the challenges that we're seeing right now in Europe, well, obviously the geopolitical ones, um, uh, trade, uh, economy, the fact that you are, um, you know, working in this EU funded kind of organization, is there a fear that significant significant funds may be kind of reoriented elsewhere to support other initiatives. Uh, and is that a challenge that you always have to have kind of in the back of your mind? Do, are we going to have enough to do our own projects, given the actual, you know, on the ground reality that uh, a lot of Europeans are facing? Right. I, um, I still believe, and sometimes uh, I might be naive, but I do sometimes live in the world that, in my opinion, uh, could be better. But, uh, you know, sometimes it's it's good to be positive and, and think about uh, the things that can work instead of the things that cannot work or how we can make it happen and not how we cannot make it happen. Um, therefore, I really uh, appreciate uh, the framework programs that the European Union has for research and innovation, right? right? Uh, currently, we are in the ninth framework program, uh, which is called Horizon Europe. Uh, and that program started back in 2021, and it has a duration of seven years until December 2027. And this program has a budget of 95.5 billion euros for the period of seven years, which basically offers funding opportunities both to individual researchers and also to research institutions that would like to collaborate and, and enter into, as we call them, consortia uh, with uh, different European partners uh, and uh, really you know, researching uh, different uh, themes and topics uh, that are uh, important and that are really the global challenges that we face as a global society. And that is the budget that, of course, uh, has been set uh, probably a year before the current framework program started. Uh, it's a budget that has to go through all the different organs of the European Union. And, um, and it was fought for uh, with uh, blood almost, I would say, uh, because it's the biggest budget we have ever had. You know, the previous framework program, which was the eighth, and it was called Horizon 2020, it, has a, it had a 70 billion euro budget for seven years and now we have almost 100 billion wow. so with that i think we can also show the interest from the european side to invest into research innovation and technology to create new opportunities to create new collaborations uh, with european partners and non-european partners and really looking for synergies uh, with the partners uh, that really share um, the same or, or similar values uh, that um, uh, that we have within Europe, and we have some so, sort of mutual mutual interests, right, uh, in in really tackling these global challenges. 
And that budget, um, I really hope that until now, I mean, we've done almost three years uh, since the new framework program started and it has not been touched uh, despite of all the, um, um, yes, difficulties uh, that are happening uh, both in Europe and, and in the world. Uh, I have not heard of any cuts uh, within this budget. And I'm hoping that really the seven years that have been set almost in stone when it comes to uh, the direction of these projects, the different uh, themes uh, and, and research areas and the budget itself, that it will last until the end, until 2027, uh, and that uh, the commission will really, um, you know, comply with this promise uh, of the budget until the end of the framework program. Tell me something, because I, I... You know, I, I've been thinking a lot that, like, while we're having this discussion about, you know, individuals, professors, academics, uh, professionals that want to relocate, for example, in, in Latin America or in South America. Um, and again, I just want to go back to that political context, because like you mentioned, I mean, I'm sure it's nice and beautiful, but we can't really state that there are stable democracies like there are in Europe, um, in, in Latin America or in South America. Um I'm just curious to know the individuals or professionals or whatever the academics that decide to relocate and end up, for example, in in Venezuela or in countries that have shaky political foundations. What happens uh, at that point in time where either it's no longer safe or their 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 mission uh, has no significant purpose anymore because of the local politics. Uh, you know, we saw recently with the election of the of the new president in Brazil that took kind of a different approach internationally. Uh, so far, I mean, there haven't been any noticeable repercussions, but I mean, who knows? It's still a new government. Uh, what happens in these situations? Uh, are you at all kind of um looking out for these sort of details you know where to send someone is it safe uh, is there longevity in the in the work or the mission that they're that they're seeking uh, are you at all kind of uh, looking into these aspects um well i think that one of the um uh, really basis or foundations for the international cooperation in research innovation technology between europe and Latin America is based um, through something that we call uh, science and technology agreements. Um, and these agreements, for example, are so far signed only with four uh, Latin American countries. It's Mexico, Chile, Argentina, and Brazil. Okay. These SNT agreements have been signed a long time ago. Uh, of course, they have been signed because there were mutual interests. There were uh, a lot of uh, different collaborative projects. There was also a quite high amount of number of researchers that were mobile uh, between Europe and these countries. Uh, nevertheless, uh, there are some other countries that are uh, popping up, uh, so to speak, within luck, uh, that offer nowadays uh, a very uh, safe and very um, high-end research infrastructure uh, where really researchers can work um, freely and, and work uh, uh, in an environment uh, that, uh, that is uh, basically uh, um, safe and, uh, and, it's, uh, and it's, uh, um, it's good for them to, to be there and share uh, with the researchers. 
some of those countries uh, I would say would be uh, Colombia, for example, uh, where I am right now. Uh, it could be also Panama uh, and Costa Rica from uh, uh, Central America. Um, it could also be Peru, uh, because uh, also the collaboration with Peru has uh, gone higher. So, of course, there are countries that are very unstable right now. And I think that those countries do not even offer, you know, that many opportunities. You don't see um, those openings uh, through the websites. You don't see uh, the governments of these countries offering, for example, grants or fellowships to the researchers to come. Uh, you don't see that those countries are really trying to attract uh, researchers from outside because they know that they are struggling uh, within their own country and they would need to kind of get to some point of stability uh, before um, they can really open up and offer uh, a sort of a harmonized uh, relationship and a cooperation. So, so far, um, as long as I'm here uh, or I have been here for, for the past three and a half years, I have not experienced uh, any anything tragic. Uh, uh, fortunately, I hope I will not. <laughs> that it will it will stay like this. Of course, we have you know the usual suspects, uh, the research institution, the university that welcome uh, the highest number of researchers in Mexico, in Colombia, in Brazil, in Chile, in Argentina. Uh, but I think that the projects are quite flexible that are funded, especially by the European Union. Also, we could see that, you know, during the pandemic, uh, where a lot of people could not do field work, right? They could not travel, they could not go uh, to their labs, or they could, they could not do these mobility um, stays, which are normally part of these research projects. So the European Commission was able to postpone them and to give them this additional space, time, uh, and also postpone the budget so they can actually, um, you know, kind of get to that commitment uh, that they proposed uh, when they wrote the proposal. So I think that that's also a very good um, sign from the Commission that um, if a pandemic, again, hopefully not, happens or if there is a there is a difficult situation in these countries and they cannot um, really use all those funds and they cannot uh, comply with uh, all the proposed milestones and objectives within the project that there is really that flexibility from the EU to help them either come back to Europe or to postpone their stay and uh, start a little bit later right uh Tell me a little bit. I mean, obviously, you've been doing this for a very long time. The program has existed, you, you know, you mentioned for, 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 for 20 years now. What are some success stories, uh, you know, or some examples uh, of research, uh, researchers who have been, you know, who have benefited from this program? So I, I actually see it here. Um, I don't want to say on a daily basis because this doesn't really happen on the daily basis. Uh, but I can I can see the results uh, uh, every year or or maybe every six months. Uh, of course, us as the coordinators as the regional representatives of Euraxis, uh, we deal with extremely big regions, uh, very big uh, populations. We have an office, for example, in India uh, with two people. We have an office in China with two people. We have an office in North America with two people. And also in Latin America and Caribbean, uh, we have an office, one in Brazil and, and in Colombia. So we are also only two people for the entire region. Um, therefore, 
it is a little bit difficult to map all these success stories, right? Because we are uh, the messengers, right? We are the intermediaries. We are the people that tell you how and where to find opportunities for your research in Europe. Right. We tell you how to apply. We tell you what are the eligibility criteria. We tell you what are the programs, what are the brands, um, how can you apply. We bring you webinars and information sessions with the experts that that really, you know, explain to you step by step how to apply. We do, we offer, for example, also practical sessions, uh, hands-on uh, webinars or, or sessions to the researchers where they can learn a lot more beyond theory. Uh, and, and most of the time uh, when we do these sessions, both virtual and, and in person, we like to invite testimonials. You know, those are our success stories. Those are the researchers that have gone through the process. Uh, they are, you know, flesh and blood and bones. Uh, so they are, they're actual people. Uh, and they come from the countries where we are based. And those for us are extremely important um, because especially uh, here in Latin America and the Caribbean, there is what I have seen in the past, there's really lack of motivation. You know, people really think that they cannot get there, that that it's not for them, that they can't achieve it. Um, so it's usually, you know, this negative um, collocation or negative thinking that, oh my God, this is a high-end, innovative, excellent project or grant. And they're like, well, but I, I come from Colombia. I, you know, I'm not good enough. Or I come from Bolivia or Ecuador um, and, and I'm, I can't apply because it's not for me. So we are not only passing on information about funding opportunities, but we are also little motivators, right? We try to show these researchers that it's possible. Therefore, we bring all these um, uh, uh, people uh, that have done and they, they have been successful in getting these uh, European projects so they can actually see them. Um, and and every um, every call that comes out for a PhD or for a postdoc or for you know uh, grants that are for more experienced researchers and, and when we get the results from the commission and we see that uh, those results contain a researcher from our region from our country so we almost pop a champagne <laughs> yeah. because we are very excited about about the fact that these people appear on those uh, uh, lists more and more. Right. Uh, and we can see more Colombian, Brazilian, Argentinian uh, researchers gaining and, and being successful uh, in these uh, in these calls. Uh, therefore, you know, we are we are very happy when we find out about that. So for us, every little success, every little, every person, every researcher that comes from our region and gains a grant is basically a little success towards uh, even a bigger one. Uh, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I, I want to wrap it up there. But, uh, you know, looking ahead now, what, what are uh, your access's goals, uh, you know, the, the aspirations for the future, um, you know, in terms of supporting uh, the researchers and in terms of, you know, enhancing European, you know, research collaboration? So when your access started and for many, many years, almost, I would say, 18 years out of 20 uh, we have been focusing on the individual. We have been focusing on the mobility grants, as we call them, right? Fellowships for individual researchers, such as 
the ones that would like to do uh, a full PhD, uh, researchers that want to do a postdoc, um, or researchers that would like to already um, have their own lab and have that independence uh, in terms of research, and they don't need a supervisor anymore, but they would like to be more uh, autonomous. So we were providing information, especially uh, to individual researchers. That was really the biggest objective um, and the biggest task of your access in the past. And as of last year, we have um, shifted a little bit or, or rather added another component, uh, and that is the collaboration. Uh, because as we mentioned, you know, Horizon Europe does not only offer grants for indiv individual researchers, uh, moreover, it does offer uh, funding for collaborative projects uh, that are really aiming to tackle these global challenges um, of the of the world. And that would be basically the future of your access as well, right? So, uh, of course, not to forget about the individual, but also promote these opportunities that are available for collaborative projects. Um, where we are looking into collaboration with research institutions, with companies, with NGOs, with hospitals, uh, with startups. We, are, uh, uh, we would like to collaborate both with the academic and non-academic sector and look into those uh, really big missions and big challenges that the world is facing uh, today because, you know, alone, we cannot do that. Europe as a continent cannot tackle all these challenges because, as we mentioned, they're global, they're worldwide. And we are talking about oceans and soil and cancer and climate change uh, and smart cities, right? So each of those international partners based in our worldwide hubs can add perhaps um, somehow, either with expertise, uh, with their know-how, with knowledge, with researchers, or with, of course, geographical uh, uh, entourage uh, to these projects that we would like to um, have in the future. So I'm hoping that us as Euraxis, in the small team that we are, we can put a little grain of the sand uh, towards uh, tackling these global challenges so we can have, you know, bigger impact on the world um, and towards a better society. Victoria, I want to thank you so much for your time. It was um, it was really informative and I hope it brought a lot of value to the listeners uh, and to all the viewers. Um, and I want to thank everyone for listening or watching, whether you're on audio platforms or whether you're on YouTube. Thank you so much for the support. Thank you for watching. Thank you for following. And we will see you all in the next episode. Thank you so much again, Victoria. Thank you so much, George. It was a pleasure to be here today with you. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Strategy International podcast. Produced by PodMTL for Strategy International. Feel free to subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere fine podcasts can be found. This podcast is made for Strategy International Limited Cyprus. All copyrights reserved. This podcast, audio or audiovisual, may not be reproduced, duplicated, copied, sold, resold, visited, or otherwise exploited for any commercial, scientific, educational purpose 
without the written consent of Strategy International Limited and its legal representative.